So as we come to James chapter 4 this morning, I want to give a little bit of a review from where we left off last week. So we're over halfway through this book of the Bible as we have been journeying through it piece by piece. James has five chapters and we're beginning chapter 4 this morning. But a couple of weeks ago, you remember that in the beginning of chapter 3, we talked specifically about the tongue and taming the tongue. And James says that this is actually the part of your body that you have no control over. You, you cannot bridle your tongue. You cannot tame it like a rudder of a ship. You actually can't control this thing. Your tongue is a world of unrighteousness, he says. It is a restless evil. We noted that really, ultimately, the only one who could bridle the tongue, who could control the ship of the rudder of our tongue, is Jesus. Right? God is the only one who can actually control our tongue. We cannot tame it on our own. But then James goes into the rest of chapter 3 that we looked at last week, and he describes for us two different kinds of wisdom. There is a worldly wisdom, and then there is a wisdom from above. There is a wisdom from God. And you remember that he begins with a rhetorical question in verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? So he gets our juices flowing. He asks us a question to to pique our minds to understand what he's about to go to. And he describes for us this worldly wisdom. And he says, this wisdom that comes from the world that you're always being inundated by, this wisdom is demonic. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. It is sourced in this wickedness. It's motivated by jealousy, it's motivated by selfish ambition. And the result of all of that then is going to be vile practices. It's going to be disorder. But then he explains for us the kind of wisdom that we want. He, he explains the wisdom from above, this wisdom that is sourced in God. That God gives us this wisdom. It is from above and it's not motivated by selfish ambition. It is motivated by meekness in our lives and it results in this whole harvest of righteousness. And so specifically in verse 17, commenting that it results, this wisdom from God results in a harvest of righteousness within our lives and it was sown in peace like a farmer sows. It was sown in peace by those who make peace. But then he moves from this result of godly wisdom, this peaceful, righteous, holy, pure life, and he asks another question in James 4.1. And so this is how you live when wisdom is applied in your life. You'll be at peace and you'll make peace and all the fruit of this wisdom is going to come to you because you're implementing God's wisdom in your life. However, James 4.1, what causes quarrels and fights among you. So now he turns from this peaceful life that you, that you should have when implementing God's wisdom, and he turns to what an unpeaceable life looks like. What does an unpeaceable life look like? The, the life, the person, the church that doesn't have peace, what does that look like? Where passions reign, where conflict as the title of the sermon that's noted on your bulletin, conflict in the camp, where conflict is persisting. And what's interesting is he's talking to the Christian community. He's talking about conflict, and he's immediately attaching the Christian community to this idea of 
conflict, these scattered Christians, groups of Christians that are all around that he's writing to, which is where the first piece of this, of what I want to show you, this point number one that's on the back of your bulletin, I want to show you the scene of the conflict. The scene of the conflict. What is the scene or setting of these quarrels and fights that James talks about in verse 1? Notice again verse 1. He asks, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with one another? So notice that first question ending with, Among you. The scene of the conflict is the church. It's among them. The war zone is the gathered congregation. The war zone is God's people. So think of these people that he's writing to and the churches, the church throughout the ages, the, 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 the centuries here, the members of the church, this is where the war zone is. The quarrels and the fights, they're happening among the very people that Jesus shed his blood for. Members of the body, members of the church, going after other members of the church. It's remarkable when you think that this book of James was likely the first book of the New Testament to be written. That all the way back at the very beginning of the church, he has to say, what is causing these quarrels? What is causing these fights? 2,000 years ago. And also remember, again, that this is the scattered group of Christians. This is not just one isolated church in one isolated area. This is a bunch of Christians in a bunch of different places. I'm not sure if that should encourage us or discourage us. But the language that James uses is so strong with the words quarrels and fights. Believe it or not, these are actually used as war terms. James is using military language to refer to what is going on in the church. According to several commentators, quarrels would refer to a whole military campaign and fights would refer to individual battles. So James is asking these churches, what is going on with the World War III in your church? Why are all of these battles happening Within your church. And without a doubt, if you have spent any amount of time in churches at all, you know that there are war campaigns that happen in churches. There are battles that happen in churches. I remember being a teenager and, of course, being exposed to church. Our church had all kinds of issues. And this one guy in a members meeting standing up and just basically hollering on his way out the door. And that's sad. But sadder still it is when people that are not Christians and know little about churches, they'll often know when the church in town has an issue. And how sad it is when we tarnish the reputation of Jesus with church splits, with bickering, with hypocrisy, that the outside world takes a quick look at the church and say, why would I want to enter into a church? They have all of the same problems that I have out here. Why would I want to add to it? And the truth is, though, that it really doesn't matter the setting. Because wherever there are sinful people gathered, a church, a marriage, family, there's going to be conflict. 
Which I think is why the biblical authors push so hard against and steer us away from placing ourselves into a situation where, there, where we can stir up conflict. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So admonishing them, stay away from controversies because all this is going to do is breed quarrels. Or Titus chapter 3, verse 9, Paul again, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Stop quarreling over these genealogies in the Bible. Stop quarreling about these things about the law. It's unprofitable to do that. Now certainly you've never heard Christians fight about Bible topics, right? There again, if you've been in the church at all, you know that there's a disagreement on just about every single page of the Bible, right? You're fighting about it. And there's a place for learning and discussion and growing and challenging one another in the Word. If you've been within the context of our church, you know that we're constantly trying to provide you with resources like this Christian ethics class and Rooted, Sunday school throughout the year and for our children and course worship, all of these settings that we're trying to to move you and, and help you grow in your knowledge of God, and so there's place for that. But fighting and quarreling, that's not what God has. Unless you are doing battle against actual false teachers and false teaching, that's a different ballgame. And that is a battle we're called to have, but not against each other. The reality for the readers of James was this consistent chronic battle that was happening to them. This was a a persistent issue for them. Those people in the church who had covenanted together, that were knitted together in love, Paul says, instead of being knitted together in love, they're fraying the knitted composition of the church, and they're becoming known for war and battle in their midst, in the camp, as it were, with this conflict. You stack up, you look at the first two verses there. You stack up the vocabulary, some of the same words, where he says quarrels, fight, war, murder, fight, quarrel. One commentator said it this way. James chooses the vocabulary of war to express controversies and quarrels, animosities, and bad feeling among Christians. Not because there is no other way of saying it, but because there is no other way of expressing the horror of it. He is seeing the relationships of the church through the eye of God. Do you attempt to view the controversies and the relationship struggles and the gossip and the slander and the anger and the pride and the hate within the church through the eyes of God? So often in our complacency, we'll shrug our shoulders when a couple of members have an issue. Now, we don't really care that there's division. We'll roll our eyes when somebody has a problem with the way that something happened or what somebody said or whatever, and you and I will devalue their thought on something and look down on what James and the Bible actually ramp up. And so when an issue happens with somebody, it's, here we go again. And what James calls war and battle, we belittle that. We say it's not that big of a deal. When James is saying, this is a huge deal. Do you remember the the story of Gideon in the book of Judges where Gideon is called to go to battle against the people of Midian? 
And God whittles down Gideon's men to like 300 men, right? And they're going to go do battle against the Midianites who have thousands of soldiers. And what they decided their goal was going to be, their strategy was going to be to enter while the Midianites were in their camp. They were going to enter into that area, kind of sneak up on them a little bit while they weren't ready for battle. And part of the strategy was that the people of Israel, they were going to blow their trumpets, they were going to smash these jars that they had, and then they were going to raise their torches, and of course Midian, they're hoping, is going to be utterly freaked out. They're not ready for this, but it's only 300 Israelites. And so this is exactly what they do. They descend upon the camp of Midian, they blow the trumpets, they smash the pots, they raise up their torches, and essentially they sit back and watch. And as panic ensues in the camp of Midian... The men run around the camp in such disarray, these Midianites. And what do they begin to do? They begin stabbing each other. They begin killing each other. They're so confused as to what's happening because of what the Israelites are doing with the fire and the trumpets and all of that, that they're so confused they can't even tell one person from the other. They just start killing each other, right? And instead of turning and killing the Israelites, they turn and kill each other. And I think that that helps to illustrate so often what happens within the church family. The battle is out there. But so often, like the Midianites, we start to stab each other instead. And unlike the Midianites, the reason that we wage war against each other is not because of confusion. According to James, it's because of our passions. Look again at verse 1, at the, at the, the second question of verse 1. So we've seen the setting of the conflict. Now look at the cause of the conflict. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So the reason that you have this war going around you and the battle happening within the context of the church, you all, plural, in the church family, is because of the passions that are at war within you, singular. You have war, plural, in the church, Because of the passions inside individual you. So you have these war against brothers and sisters in the context of the church. Because you have a war in your heart. One commentator said, All our desires and passions are like an armed camp within us. Ready at a moment's notice to declare war against anyone who stands in in the way of some personal gratification on which we have set our hearts. So this is the problem. Your passions are at war within you. Your passions will flare up at a moment's notice when you don't get what you want, something doesn't happen how you want it, or whatever. The problem isn't the other person who so often we're willing to blame when there is a conflict, right? Like so often, conflict arises. the first thing we start doing is pointing. We immediately start doing the whole Adam and Eve thing, right? It's this woman you gave me, right? That, that's why I took the fruit, because of the woman you gave me. And then the woman says, oh, it's the snake that you made. We immediately start passing blame on down the line. No, though. The problem in regard to the wars and battles within the church is because of the passions within your own heart. The word for passion here is uh, hedone, which is where we get the word hedonist from. Somebody who spends their life gratifying and satisfying their sensual pleasures or whatever pleasures they want. That's that's a hedonist, right? And this word James uses doesn't have to be used negatively, but he does use it negatively. Other translations will say, for passions, will say pleasures, desires, 
cravings. And conflict comes because of those. You can be passionate about sports, reading, crafting, whatever it is you're passionate about. But in this context, your passions, your cravings, are at war within you. And then there's war in the church because of what's in your heart. And the thing is, that living according to our passions is something that describes us before we get saved. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses, this is who you are before you came to Christ, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, you were following after the prince of the power of the air. And then he says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath. This is who you once were. You were dead. You followed after the world. You followed after Satan. And you lived according to your passions. This isn't who you're supposed to be now. That's who you were before you became a Christian. But because of the nature of indwelling sin that remains in every believer, you cannot become perfect in this life. That all of us within the context of the church are continually struggling with sin. We're always dealing with it, always battling it. And because of this, you can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, there are times where I do the very things that I hate. And then what I do... I don't want to do. And I do it. And in this life, our passions are constantly going to flare and cause us to say what we shouldn't say. To be ugly to other people. Other people that we profess to love. Like our church family. And this application extends extends to our spouses and to our families. To the people within our jobs. The reason you have these conflicts because of the passion within you. And in light of that, what are the results of this conflict? So when you have these conflicts arise because of your passions, what are the results? Look at verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's interesting, isn't it, how quickly we can become desensitized toward death. I don't watch the news all that much, but every now and then, whether you're watching the news or um, going on social media or something, and you see news about somebody who died. It's almost like a low-level piece of news in some ways. And murder is so common... That when you hear about a murder that happens in in Portland or Lewiston or Boston or whatever it is, it's commonplace. And even these mass murders that have happened a lot lately, it's kind of become commonplace to to hear about those and to maybe wince, oh, that's really too bad, maybe pray, but then kind of move on, right? You don't really think about it anymore. And how easy it is for our senses to become dulled to something as terrible as death. And to think that another person was so filled with rage and hate, their passions, and they were able to pull the trigger or thrust the knife or light the bomb or whatever. But you see, I think in the context of the church, our senses have likewise been dulled to the murder 
that happens in the church on a rampant basis. And if you think I'm exaggerating or drawing a parallel, I shouldn't use. That's what he says there in verse 2 of James 4. You desire and you don't have, so you what? You murder. Now the eventual course of action due to desires not being met, when you're lusting after something and that desire is just not being met, the eventual uh, outcome of that can certainly be murder. But I'm not so sure that actual murder was an issue in the early church right here, where church members were actually killing church members. But even if I'm wrong on that, minimally, there was murder going on within the hearts of those who made up the church. Like Jesus says, to to hate somebody is as though you're killing them, the parallel is. There was murder going on within the hearts of those who made up the church. And one of the problems is that we don't often have the eyes to see the carnage. And so when you hear about the murder on the news, it's not as though they're going to necessarily show you the video of the murder actually happening that might jolt you into reality and how real the situation is, where that might awaken your senses. Or maybe we do see the murder and the hate and the anger and the conflicts going on in the context of the church. But it's almost like we're watching a movie or we're watching TV and we can remain detached from it. We saw that it happened, but we don't really have to get wrapped into it. It's only a movie. It's only something to watch. But friends, conflict and wars and murder happen within the context of the church all the time. And most of the time, unless it's happening to us or somebody close to us, we do not often feel the sting of that murder. But if God gave us the spiritual eyes to see at this moment in this room, would there be people that are bleeding out in our presence? Would this room look like a medical tent off in the theater of war? And it breaks my heart when people tell me within the context of the church when people have hurt them or when I have hurt them where I did something born out of my passions that hurt somebody. Doesn't that break your heart? It's almost like you could sit down with some Christians who have been around for a while, and they're like a World War II vet. They're like a Korean War vet where they can sit around and say, yeah, got my arm blown off in Korea. I got this scar over here when I was doing this, right? Lost my leg in Nam. And as Christians, we can often say, yeah, 20 years ago this has happened to me and here's the scar and I'm not over it. Doesn't that break your heart? And you might be thinking, is there some war going on in the church, this church right now, that nobody knows about? Like some big problem? Like church is going to split next week? Well, I hope not, right? And God has been doing incredible things in this church. Adding to it, saving people, bringing so many of you here. And I love what God is doing. But wherever there are sinners, like you and me, there's got to be conflict. And you have these passions, James says, these desires, and it causes you to murder one another, to be angry with one another, to stand up in your pride and to be ugly toward other people. And you covet something that you cannot get on your own, James says, and so you do battle because of that. How can this be? When you consider it in light of the gospel, how can this be? That God stepped out of heaven To take on your sin. Jesus steps out of heaven. The one who did not deserve to be mistreated was mistreated. 
We, the ones who deserve to be mistreated, were not mistreated by Him. The, the one dead in their sins and pursuing their passions and following after Satan, all of that from Ephesians 2, He comes from heaven and instead of condemning us and saying, you deserve to go to hell, which certainly we do, He has said that, but then making a way of escape. How does that work? Instead of dooming us to hell for all of eternity, Jesus looks upon us with favor. He calls us unto Himself. He never lived according to His own sinful passions because He had no sinful passions without sin. And He goes to the cross to pay your sin's penalty and mine. But that's not all He did. You see, He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, Paul says. And so if you're a genuine Christian... You believe in Jesus, all that He has done for you in the gospel, that you are in Christ, then He has given you His righteousness. He's robed you in His righteousness, He stood you up in it, and He gives us then new desires. Like this is the wonderful thing, that I don't live according to the passions of my flesh, that I used to walk in and I used to pursue and I used to allow flare up all the time. No, I'm a Christian now because God has given me these new desires as a result. The Bible says in Romans 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Then he goes further on. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you have these lusts, you have this coveting, you have these cravings, and the results of these passions are this murder and this war within the context of the Christian church. But how can you live that way when your old self and the passions and all that went with it was crucified with Jesus so that you would no longer be enslaved to sin? This is why it is so important that every single day when you wake up, you preach the gospel to yourself. That when you wake up, you say, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to Christ. God has given me new desires and I'm going to walk in those good desires. He says further down in Romans 6.12 Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So this is how the Christian lives, because of the gospel, because the spirit of Christ within them, they are empowered to not let sin reign in their mortal bodies. And in so doing, they are set free from having to obey their passions, And so the remedy for the passions that arise within you, this war zone in your heart, is to preach this gospel to yourself. I have died with Christ. I have been raised with Christ. And in light of this beautiful truth, by the power of the Spirit of God, I do not have to let sin reign in my body. I do not have to obey the passions of my flesh. I don't have to lash out in anger or pride or indifference toward my brother or sister. My Christ has died for me. And he died for them. But finally, look at the extension of the conflict in verse 2 and into verse 3. He says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
And so these passionate people that he's talking about are lusting, desiring, craving things according to their passions. They have all of these wants, right? And they are willing to kill and to do battle over the things that they want. But James points out the irony about it all. They're willing to do all of that wickedness when they lust something. They're willing to basically kill somebody. But they're not willing to do what they should be doing. And that's pray. That they're lusting for this thing over here. So they're willing to murder for it. But they're not willing to pray for that thing. And James notes two things about it. That they fail to pray. Or they pray in the wrong way. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. So they're not even beseeching God for what it is they're lusting after. What it is they're craving for. This reminds us again of what Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. James said in chapter 1, if any of you lack wisdom, specifically talking about this wisdom, to let him ask that every perfect gift and good gift comes from God. So why are we desiring or lustful or coveting after something that is not ours instead of coming to God and asking for it? But there yet remains another problem because it doesn't just come down to asking. This robotic motion of praying to God and asking for something. James says that our prayer must not be asked wrongly, out of wrong motivations. A prayer prayed that is motivated by our sinful passions won't get further than the ceiling, right? If you get on your knees and you start asking God for something that you're lusting after, you're craving, like out of your wrong desires, He's going to give you that thing? And some of you might be sitting here thinking that you do ask, that you pray and you ask God for things all of the time. And even things that you might perceive as good things in the moment. But how many of us would be willing to admit if we really search those prayers in our heart behind them? If we're asking out of wrong motivation. right? We're asking for the fruit of the Spirit to be applied to our lives. Not because we actually want that. But because we want to look good in the eyes of other Christians. Or whatever it is. We're wrongly motivated even by asking for good things and so we ask God and we get irritated when it doesn't produce as one author has said the gifts giving God is here manipulated as a kind of vending machine precisely for the purpose of self-gratification and you know that feeling right when you're standing at the vending machine making your decision you slide your money in you hit you know when I was in college, we used to have um, those double-decker oatmeal cream pies. And I love those things. I still, sometimes at a gas station, I'll see it and be like, oh, i got to get one of those. Oatmeal cream pies. And when I first went to college, it was F2. That's what you would hit to get it. I still, that was 13 years ago. F2. It's just robotic for me to do that, I guess. But isn't that what we do with God? Here's my prayer. F2. Give me... The oatmeal cream pie. And only two options remain, though, if we're going to do what is right in some way. We either stop praying, and that's not an option, is it? Or we repent of our sin. Those wrong motives, those passions within us, the lusting, the coveting, the craving, we repent of that sin, we ask God to forgive us, and we turn away from that and ask according to His will, and He promises that He will give it. And it's really that repentance and manner with God and others 
that we'll come to together next time when we look at the book of James. But I'll just leave you with this. Look at James chapter 4 and verses 7 to 10. Because this is where the passage ends up going. This is the response that he wants from us all in verse 7 to 10. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So you want your prayers to be heard before God? Submit to him. Resist the devil. Draw near to him. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Humble yourselves before him. And whatever you ask according to his will, he will provide. But what about within the context of the conflict? What about that war zone in the church? You want to have the resolution to the conflict within the church? Don't start by trying to look outside of you and trying to clean up the mess that you see outside of you. Start by looking inward. And the passions that are within you. And your passions bowing to God, bending the knee to Him, submitting to Him, resisting Satan, drawing near to God, cleansing your hands, purifying your hearts, and humbly placing yourself before God. And what God will do is He will continue to deliver you from the passions of the flesh that He saved you from. And He'll continue to bring peace to the battlefield of your heart. And as a result, there will not be conflict in the camp of the church. Let's pray.